Thanks, honey. <laughs> All right, we are in John chapter 5 today. Let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. Ring my sleeve out a little before it drips on my Bible. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> All right, John chapter 5. Uh, last week, as we began John chapter 5, uh, a lot is going on there. We took a pause. And if you have not heard that sermon, you might go back because it does lay a foundation for a lot of other things that are going to be mentioned in the book of John regarding the feast and how important the feast were in the Old Testament and how important the feast were in the life of Christ and his fulfillment of those feasts as well. Uh, so we spent some, quite a time on that. Uh, last week we, we looked, as all this continues on, that Jesus went to the pool of Bethsaida, and there at the pool there was a lame man. He spoke and healed that man very quickly, very easily, simply said, get up, take your mat, and walk. And that's exactly what the man did. Uh, we also took note that the Pharisees loved Sabbath days. Why did they love Sabbath days so much? Not actually because they loved God so much. Uh, Jesus tells them that they are actually father, followers of Satan, and that Satan is his father, their father later on. So it was not out of love of God that they loved the Sabbath, but they loved being judgmental. And there's no better day than the Sabbath to, to sit on the steps, to sit up high and see if there's anyone who has come to town who is breaking the Sabbath. And this was a particular feast Sabbath, so it meant all males, no matter where you were, had to pilgrim back to Jerusalem for this Sabbath day festival celebration. So it was prime time for the Pharisees to do what they do best, and that is to judge men's hearts. So they see the man walking with the mat and call him out for working. And then the man, of course, says, actually, it was this another man who told me to do this. They finally narrow it down, realize who it is, and his name is Jesus, right? So they accuse Jesus of working on the Sabbath. And let's pick up there. Look at verse 18, and we'll read through verse 24 today. John chapter 5, verse 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you, we praise you, we acknowledge you as creator of all, as the one who grants grace and gives mercy. And Lord, we thank you for providing salvation through Jesus Christ, that in him we can have eternal life, and that we are to rest in him, we are to believe in him, we are to rest fully in the salvation that is provided by Jesus Christ. Again, we acknowledge we do nothing in and of ourselves that is good, that is worthy of salvation, but Jesus is absolutely perfect. We thank you 
that is his righteousness that we depend on to get to heaven and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look back there at verse 18. And here, uh, John really kind of summarizes where we've come from and also where we're going in this short uh, one verse. It's kind of isolated by itself. He says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his own father, God, his own father, making himself equal to God. Now remember, the book of John, he has a great purpose statement there in chapter 20, verse 31, but these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we've seen this already, this, this underlying theme that is, is prominent and why John is writing it keeps coming up. I mean, you look at the beginning of John 1, verse 1, right? It's absolutely, abundantly clear that Jesus is God. And he builds upon that and exposes that throughout the book of John. So thus far, as we've gone through the book of John, obviously we have John 1, 1, where the Word is with God, the Word was God, the Word putting on flesh in John 1.14, that Jesus is very God. But also that's continually added too. We have Jesus there at the wedding feast early on, where he takes the role of the bridegroom, where the earthly bridegroom fails and turns the water into wine and does what the, the bridegroom was supposed to do. In that we see an allusion to his being the bridegroom. Who was the bridegroom in the Old Testament? It's God. God is always the bridegroom in the Old Testament, and, and we, the, or the people, Israel, was his bride. And now he is introducing himself as the bridegroom. That's something only God has the title of. We see John the Baptist, who actually calls him the bridegroom, and expands upon that as well. Uh, we see where Jesus, at the, at the well, with the woman at the well, says he is the fountain of life. That is another title that is, is reserved for God in the Old Testament. Uh, then as he ends that episode with the Samaritans, he tells them that he is, I am. What is that? If you tell a person, I am, what is Jesus saying? He's pulling again from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3, where God in the burning bush reveals his name to Moses. When Moses says, who shall I say is sending me to tell him these things? God says, tell them, I am has sent you. So you see Jesus continually, and John recording this, just continually adding to, Jesus is God. Now, in chapter 5 today, uh, you're going to see one of the longest teachings where Jesus himself expounds upon this fact, that he is not just a mere mortal, and that's all, but that he is also God. So, look, did the Pharisee, and look over there at verse 18, verse 19. Uh, let's just stick with verse 18. Did the Pharisees understand what Jesus was claiming, according to this passage? Uh, and it's absolutely clear, John records, that they understood what he was saying. They want to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? Look back at verse 18. Because he was breaking the Sabbath, number one, and he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, this is huge. Because you have Jesus, who they are accusing of breaking the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is also God. Who put the rules in place uh, for the Pharisees to keep? It was God, right? But here you have God in the flesh, who they are accusing of violating the Sabbath. 
Now, there's two schools of thought when it comes to this, what was actually going on. Uh, some would say that the man, the man that he had carrying the mat was not actually violating the Sabbath. All right, now here's the catch. If you go back and look in Deuteronomy, look at Exodus, the rules for the Sabbath is not only can I not work, but I can assign no one else to work either. So I can't get my wife or my kids or the sojourner or even my animals to do work. Uh, so if this man is working, not only is he violating the Sabbath, but also the one who told him to go and do the work. So was the man working on the Sabbath? Uh, or if you recall, why was a man stoned to death in the Old Testament for working on the Sabbath? What did he do? He picked up sticks, right? So it doesn't take much at all. And literally, God said, I mean, they caught him doing this work. Moses, what should we do? God says to stone him because they were to rest fully. Again, this is typology. It's pointing to the substance of that rest. They are to rest fully on that day in God's provision for them. They were to contribute no work. They were to stop work completely. So to violate that, to go pick up sticks when God said don't do any work, clear violation of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel. Now, uh, so in the New Testament now, is this man, has this man violated the Sabbath by picking up a mat, he's been healed, putting it on his shoulder, and walking off. So some people would say yes, some people would say no. We know what the Pharisees would say. Yes, yeah, let's get the rocks. So he is definitely violating the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have, right? It is God in the flesh. He told the man uh, to get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He didn't have to say that. He could have said, get up, leave your mat, and walk. It seems like, and if we know anything about God, that Jesus was very intentional and very deliberate with his words. He wanted this whole scenario to take place. He wanted this man to carry the mat. He knew the judges of Israel would be scouting out, looking for everyone to see if there's anyone breaking the Sabbath, right? So he knew all this was going to happen. And basically he has set it up so that it happens exactly like he wants it to happen. Now, the man most likely, I lean towards, was doing something that could be classified as work. Theologians kind of vary on that, all right? Uh, was Jesus doing work that day? And uh, if we look at that, like, what was he doing? And when he's pinned down, and when they say, you're working on the Sabbath, notice that he does not say, no, I was not, and no, I am not. He actually doubles down and says, yes, I am working on the Sabbath, and I'm working for the same reason that God works on the Sabbath. God, my Father, works on the Sabbath. So this is where it gets really, really heated with the Pharisees because they know exactly what he's doing. He is saying that he is greater than the Sabbath. Is Jesus greater than the Sabbath? Absolutely. That's what it was pointing towards. The old, old covenant sign of, uh, sign of the covenant resting on that day was pointing to the ultimate person of rest that was to come that we are to rest in for provision of our salvation. As Paul says it, that was a shadow, but Jesus Christ is the substance. He's greater than the Sabbath, all right? Can he work on the Sabbath? Yes, he says, and the same reason that God works on the Sabbath, that he can work. Same reason. What's that mean? The Pharisees know what this means. He is claiming, believe it or not, 
that God is his father and that he has equal rights to work on the Sabbath as God the Father does. What should we do to this man, they ask? We know we should kill him. That's right, that we should kill him. After he just healed this man who had been lame for 38 years, and I'm going to repeat this a lot as we go through the book of John, but sometimes we read this, the Bible, and just think that this happens all the time in the Bible. Dead are being raised all the time, and lame people are being healed all the time, and it's just the norm, and it's not. We have the, the few occasions there in the Old Testament of supernatural signs and wonders that are around Moses and Joshua. Fast forward, we have Elijah and Elisha. Fast forward, and then we get the New Testament, and it's opening up with Jesus. And what were all these signs and miracles and wonders, marvels? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to get people's attention, marvel, supernatural work of God has happened. What does this mean? Oh, yeah, Moses, God did this too, so people would see that he is a messenger from God. God is authenticating him, validating his message and his person for the people to listen to him. Same with the prophets, Elisha and Elijah, or Elijah and Elisha. Got to get those in alphabetical order. Helps out with that. So you have seven miracles there, 14 with Elisha. Then the New Testament opens up, and it's just, it's going to be nonstop. Now, John records seven supernatural signs for us to look into. And this one, we see that God, Jesus Christ, incarnate, speaks. The man is immediately healed. So why is he putting this one here? He's definitely pointing this pointing us to something greater than the Sabbath has happened. The sign of the Old Covenant was the Sabbath. The substance of the New Covenant is Jesus Christ. Something greater is before the Pharisees. Something greater than the Sabbath, something greater than the feast, and it's God. The very person of God is there amongst them. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever his, the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now this is a little saying we'll see as we go throughout the book of John. Two words repeated there in verse 19. Truly, truly. And this is just a way in the Hebrew language that they would add a superlative, uh, an increasing amount of something, all right? You could say something like good or very good. That's the way we would do something like that. Or if you're from where I'm at in Arkansas, you would say good, good, or goodest, you know, to add to the superlative there. All right, so when Jesus, in their language and their culture, wants to do such a thing, he'll repeat this word two times. And everything Jesus says is absolute truth. There is no flaw in Jesus. There is no, some things are true, some things are less true. Everything he says is absolute truth. So why does Jesus ever need to say, truly, truly? Are those words more true than the other words he said? No, it's not that. It's to get their attention. It's like he's doubling down, making sure that he know, they know that what he says is, is true and I'm not messing up. I'm, this is not a mistake. I am trying to get your attention to the point that I'm about to say. This is a theological point, an extremely important point. Truly, truly. So hone in, listen. I'm not saying these words by accident. All of this is on purpose, okay? So what is the point that he's doubling down on here to get their attention? What is the point he's trying to make extra clear? This is it. He is God the Son and is perfectly obedient to God the Father. Look back at verse 19. Truly, truly, 
He's bringing them in, right? I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And now again, all this is playing into what has just happened. The man has been healed. They're accusing him of being in sin. Jesus Christ himself for working on the Sabbath, telling this man to work on the Sabbath. Jesus says, God is working for the same reason I am working. What is that? Because we are God. He is God the Father. I am God the Son. So he says in verse 19, he can only do uh, what he sees the Father doing. Now this is an interesting point. We're just going to pause for a moment on it. As we look at verse 19, uh, we definitely see that Jesus claimed equal rights to the Father for working on the Sabbath. However, in this verse, Jesus makes a distinction between himself and the Father. We also see that in John chapter 1, verse 1 as well, that he was with God and was God, but there is distinction, but there is the same one. And you begin to see this Trinity concept begin to come out more and more. John chapter 3, we see the Holy Spirit brought out more and more. And here we see uh, something, of course, that's Trinitarian, but also we see something that's... Uh, that's, that we need to camp out on just a minute here. Uh, the Trinity is one God in whom exists God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right? There are not three gods, and this is extremely important. We believe there is one God. This is what the Bible teaches. It does not teach that there are three separate gods. The Bible also does not teach that there is, a, there is not one God who takes on different modes as either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. This would be modalism, Patrick. This would be modalism. All right. So it's not that. All right. So, so he's not teaching pluralism, that there are multiple gods. He's not teaching that there is modalism. Uh, and instead, he's teaching a Trinitarian doctrine here. God exists in Trinity, three in one. Now, you get to a little bit of something complicated here that you might not have been aware of in verse 19. And there's some, there's some big words that go, big theological terms that go to this. You don't have to memorize them. If you want to, you can. But it's good to just comprehend this as you read through the book of John because it's going to come up multiple times. The words are these. This can be known as economic subordination or functional subordination. What does that mean? All right. This is, if you look back at verse 19, notice the subordination to the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. So who is he subordinate to in his actions? He is in, subordinate to the Father, right? Uh, we don't ever see this reversed in the Bible, where it's not the Son in the place of the Father in this subordination. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what, the, what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So you don't see these reversed ever. So it's functional or economic how things play out, subordination. Now, does this mean that Jesus is less God than God the Father? Absolutely not. This is not what that means at all. Uh, it just means that they have a difference in subordination. Uh, church history, as we're going over on Wednesday nights, there's been many, many fights throughout church history on this. The homoousius abate of that was Jesus of the same essence or substance as God the Father, or was he less than uh, God the Father? 
And the, the, the true statement is that they are the same essence. They are of the same being. They are of the same quality, but yet there is this subordination, subordinationism that we'll see multiple times, even in, the, in chapter 5, all right? Uh, now, Jesus camps out on this, verse 19, on the perfectness. They can do nothing except what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, this is important. Uh, why was, why is the perfect obedience of Christ important to us? This is extremely important. Now, think of what's going on. You have the judges of Israel, the Pharisees, who Jesus clearly calls hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They're dead on the inside. They look good on the outside. They're judging hypocritically, putting themselves in the place of judge and their righteous standards, right? Uh, so they're judging Jesus for doing wrong. Jesus says, not only am I not in sin for what I have done, but I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, his ratio of obedience to the Father is what percent, if we could put a percentage on that. It would be A++. It would be 100%, all right? There is not one mark. There is not one thought. There is not one word. There is not one deed of breaking the Sabbath as they're accusing of or calling himself equal to God. They're saying these things are sin. He says, I am absolutely in perfect harmony with the Father. Now, why is this important? If Jesus was not absolutely perfect, what would it mean for us? If he was not absolutely perfect, if there were sins, if, if truly that day he had sinned, all right, what would that mean? It would mean we have no salvation and we're gathered here for nothing today. It would mean that Jesus died on the cross for the same reason really we all die. There is no difference. Death. He is pay, is, can pay for not his sin. He cannot pay for our sin. He could do nothing. He's just one of us. But he's absolutely perfect. So this is huge. Because how do we get to heaven? God is holy. He is perfectly holy. Paul tells us all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Will you ever be perfect enough to get to heaven? No. Whose righteousness do we rely on? It's Jesus Christ. That's him and him alone. That's why we, we don't look in the mirror and look at it and say, oh, I'm pretty good. I think I deserve heaven. No, you deserve hell. And until you realize you deserve hell, you're never going to get to heaven. You need to see that you're, you have sinned against a holy, righteous God. You deserve eternal wrath. You deserve the punishment that he is going to give you. But then you see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of salvation. The God who created everything is also the God who has provided the way of salvation to get back to him. You can't do it in and of yourselves. Only Jesus Christ can. He has to be perfect. So he camps out on this, letting them know, listen, not only am I not sinning, I am perfect, doing everything just and exactly as my Father has shown me. Now, move on to verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Again, notice these, these bigger theological words we just covered. There's functional subordinationism or economic uh, subordinationism even here in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So again, you see that playing out there, right? It's not the Son showing the Father, but the Father showing the Son. They're, they're, they're equally God, co-eternal, 
co-equal, same essence, but different subordinating roles, okay? All right, in this passage, Jesus reminds the Pharisees of why the Father granted such works to be done by Jesus. If you look at verse 19, what is it? It's so that they will marvel, so that they will marvel. In other words, they're supposed to look at this. This man has just been healed 38 years, and all of a sudden he is fully healed, tendons, muscles, ligaments, everything, uh, neutrons, neurons, whatever, everything has been back together instantaneously, and this man is like up and at him, going, walking to the temple. And as we covered, why was he going to the temple? Odds are it was to worship God, as he had been commanded to do on this feast day. First time in 38 years he can do so. Where do I go? I'm going to the temple to worship God, right? Beautiful. He has healed him to bring him to worship. So you see all these things happening. They see these things happening. What do they do? They don't marvel. Instead, they do the opposite of that, and they judge the man who has done this supernatural sign. People were not doing this. this was, people weren't just going around telling lame men to get up. This was a sign, big sign. What is the sign pointing to? It's pointing to God, who is pointing to the man doing these things. Listen to him, all right? So supernatural signs were meant to make people marvel because they were obviously a supernatural act of God. However, instead, their hearts are revealed. They don't love God, these Pharisees. They want to kill God. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, this is huge. This is a, a huge statement by Jesus Christ that Jesus is the author of life, physical and eternal. And he's going to kind of make the switch as he begins to teach this. He has brought this man not from death, but he has restored his life, his livelihood. He is up and he is walking around. Later, Jesus will fully raise people from the dead, including he will be raised from the dead. But here, he's telling them all this is happening in, in the same conversation. The lame man is now walking fully restored. And here he says in verse 21, he's copying everything the father does, does what the, the father tells him. But he says, for as the father, as, this is important, this is the comparison, okay? For as the Father, who is he going to compare the Father to, raises the dead and gives them life, so also, and this is this equalness that the Pharisees hated, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now the Pharisees, the Jews, uh, easily acknowledge that God is the author of life. I mean, you go back to the book of Genesis. It's going to be repeated over and over and over. In the book of Psalms as well, uh, just a quick example, Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay? Life did not come accidentally from somewhere like so many atheists will try to claim. Life is intentionally put here by God. Something has to possess life in and of itself. Uh, life cannot go back and 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 go back until eventually there's something non-life that creates life. That's a scientific impossibility, but yet that's what our whole public education is based upon these days, right? Is that it's, it's just it's, there can't be some God there. It has to be all with enough time, enough millions of years, and enough chance that eventually you get life. No, you still get nothing. 
Uh, if I have nothing, how many years go by until nothing becomes something? It doesn't matter. You can put millions, billions, trillions. You can put, you keep adding those years together, and it's always going to be nothing, okay? So the point of this is Jesus is claiming that something God had, he has, and that is life within himself. That God, does not requ- God did not require a creator. God is self-existent and has power to create life and to restore life. The theological term for that self-existence is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And he's the only one that possesses such a thing. No one else has that. You're here because other people had life that beget your life. And it goes all the way back until the book of Genesis and God created life. He is living and put life here on earth. Plant life, animal life, human life, okay? Now, here, uh, look, oh, look at this one as well. Uh, 1 Kings 17, 21 through 22. So Jesus is telling them in verse 21, he said, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So not only is God the Father, that's uh, what the Pharisees and the Jews would believe, that he is... Uh, the author of life, but he is also the only one that can bring people back from the dead, that he is the one that can restore life. Jesus has restored this man's life partially, but he's pointing to something greater as well. But if you go back to the Old Testament, again, this is not common for people to be just all of a sudden raised from the dead. Uh, A couple of situations, a couple of times that come to mind are, again, back to Elijah and Elisha, bringing back someone from the dead. And they both did so by praying to who? The author of life, who created life, who has the power to restore life. Look at 1 Kings 17, 21 through 22. Then he stretched himself, this is Elijah, upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again and he revived, all right? The point of this is that it was common. They ascribed, this is not controversial, that they, yes, God is the author of life, and also through God, through the, through the prophets, God raised uh, these two people from the dead, all right? Jesus, though, is the controversial part. He is saying that he is the author of life, and also that he has the power uh, to give life as well. So this is tremendous. This is huge. He can give life. If it's, the life is gone, he can restore that life as well. Who in the Old Testament has that prerogative, has that power? Only God can do such a thing. So Jesus is revealing that not only is he responsible for physical life, but he is also going to be responsible for eternal life as well, as we're going to see this transition happening here. Uh, Look at John 3, verse 35 through 36. Jesus is granting not only physical life, but the emphasis here is going to be on eternal life. John 3, verse 35 through 36. John says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. This is a tremendous passage, okay? Now, Jesus is acknowledging, letting them know that eternal life is in the Son. 
How do you right now today, where you're sitting or listening, I think the Gim family is joining us online right now. How, how do you know right where you're at that you have eternal life? Uh, this is something really important. How many of our physical lives are going to come to an end one day? Don't raise your hand. It's depressing. But all of us, all right? Every single one of us. Uh, but the good news is that you actually have eternal life. The physical body will stop. But you have eternal life if, according to verse 35 and 36, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you're here today and say, I don't like that. I don't want to believe in Jesus Christ for my salvation. Well, let's see how you're going to end up. Let's go finish that up. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So your sins, you will die in your sins. You will die deserving the full wrath of God. And that's exactly what you'll receive for all of eternity. You could call it eternal death. You do not have eternal life. Regardless of what cartoons might say, all dogs don't go to heaven, and all people don't go to heaven either. Uh, only those who believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. You need to know this. You need to believe this. And that by believing, you may have life, eternal life, in his name. So these passages, as we're getting into John, uh, more and more, you're going to commonly see this life and death just referring to more. It means more than just physical life. It means more than just physical death. And one of the best uses of this is Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. I know I've said this before, but this is probably one of the most turned to passages in my preaching uh, tenure. We seem to come back here a lot, and that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great passage, so clear. But look what it says here. He's speaking to believers in Ephesus, to the church there, and he says, And you were, past tense, dead. Uh, he's speaking to people, he's writing to people who are alive, though, right? So obviously he's not talking to people who were physically dead. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this is spiritual death. Following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I, that can preach for all day. Just to quickly summarize, though, death. All right, verse 1. You were dead in your sins. What does this look like? It looks like you doing whatever you want to do. Uh, look at that verse 3. Lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. What does this make you? It makes you a person who by nature is a child of God's wrath. Oftentimes we think of Satan followers or Satan worshipers as, oh yeah, they're, they're uh, deliberate outwardly. Uh, Satan worshipers or followers, that's really bad, right? They definitely are bad. But here Paul lays out, that's just who people are. It's not that they have to go to worship Satan, and they're already on the side of Satan. They're already with the sons of disobedience. They're already following the prince of the power of the air. They're already doing what they want to do instead of what God wants them to do. So what is our only hope? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is beautiful. Who makes them alive? Who made them alive? Who makes you alive spiritually? There's nothing in this passage. You could keep going on all the way down to verse 8, verse 9, 10, etc. But there's nothing that we have done to contribute to this life. We were like the Lazarus who in the tomb was dead and rotting in our sins. And what happened? Did, did Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth? And Lazarus thought, I'll think about it. Let me see what I want to do, right? No, he was dead. He came forth from dead to life. Spiritually, this has happened to you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and you believe in him, you have been given now eternal life. God has brought you from the dead. That what is more awesome than if there was a dead person right in front of us today that came back to life after day, two days, three days? It's your salvation. Because that lasts longer than any dead person rising from the dead. So this is beautiful. We were dead. What can we do? Well, the Bible says no one seeks after God, not even one. What were we doing? Rotting. What happened? God. But God made you alive. So Jesus is saying, as he's talking about these things, yes, as God is the author of life and can bring back to life, I am also the author of life and the, the life eternal even as well. Uh, look at this next, next portion. Look at verse 22. Uh, Jesus is also going to be the judge. Not only is he the author of life, but he is the judge. Two titles that come from the Old Testament. Verse 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given, again you see this functional subordinationism here, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, in the Old Testament, it is clear who gives life and who can restore life is God. In the Old Testament, it is clear who is the judge. It is God, the creator of all. Genesis eighteen twenty five: Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He is the judge of all the earth. Okay, Judges eleven twenty seven. just a couple that, that emphatically state this. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, this multiple places we could go to where the Bible, Bible in the Old Testament states, God states, or someone states about him, he is the judge. But also, you just have the whole Old Testament before you and think through it. You think back to the time of Noah. You think of the judgment that God judged the earth and the wrath that he poured out on the earth during that time. He is the judge. He is the deliverer of mercy and salvation for Noah and his family. He is the deliverer of judgment and wrath for the rest of the earth. Uh, you fast forward. You think of other places in the Bible. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right where homosexuality was rampant, just rampant throughout that area. And what did God do? He judged it. He sent wrath upon it. Hell, fire, and brimstone literally rained down upon it, and it was obliterated off the face of the earth. Uh, you keep moving forward from there, and it's just judgment upon even Israel time and time again. In fact, you have a whole book uh, named that, Judges, right, where they sin, and God judges them. And gives them wrath. They repent, kind of, sort of, maybe. And then it happens again and again and again. 
You fast forward in the Bible, God judges Tyra. Uh, God judges Egypt, obviously there with Moses. God judges Babylon. God judges the Assyrians. But God is the judge. Now, that's not controversial. But what is controversial to the Pharisees is what Jesus says in verse 22 and 23, where he claims that he is going to be and is the final judge. It's like, who is judging him? You have the Pharisees who claim to be the judges of Israel who are judging the final judge and accusing him of sin. But Jesus says, I am the final judge. Now, look back at verse 23 there, uh, the end portion. It says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Uh, this is interesting, right? Like, what does this say of those who claim to honor or believe in God, but do not honor or believe in Jesus Christ? It is really common today to have people who claim to believe in God and act as if everything is right between them and this God because they believe in him, as if they've done him some kind of favor. Like, yes, I believe in God, therefore I am right with God. So I'm sure because I believe in him, he will reward me with heaven and eternal life one day. Uh, that's not the case at all. And the Bible is extremely clear. Jesus is extremely clear. And, and this was something, too, the Pharisees claimed. They claimed to represent God the Father. They claimed to be uh, his, his messengers on earth. And then you have Jesus who is saying these things. And Jesus straight up tells them, whoever does not honor the Son, which is him, does not honor the Father who sent him. This is huge. There is no access to heaven except through the Son. You cannot honor the Father and skip honoring the Son. You honor the Father by honoring the Son. That is it. Then there is no other way. Uh, so how can a person uh, escape this judgment of God that is going to come? And we'll talk more about this even next week. But there is a, obviously a final judgment that is coming. Who is the final judge? It is Jesus Christ. Now there is great comfort in this for the believer. Think about this. The one that you trust in for your salvation... Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, took your sins, gives you his righteousness, is your final judge. That's tremendous. Now you have, you are, if you imagine a court setting, you are before the judge. You are guilty for sin. You deserve punishment. You deserve, you are guilty, it is clear, and the judge comes that he announces death, you deserve death, and the judge comes off the bench and says, I'll take that penalty for you. I mean, this is, I mean, that's a, a light, not absolutely 100% correct way of explaining this, you might say. But you have the judge who is also the one who takes your punishment. And so that, yes, we will be in judgment one day. What does this mean for us? We get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is tremendous. This is huge. How can we escape the judgment of God? By honoring the Son. Because the judgment of God is going to come through the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the judge of all the earth. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
But look back at this passage. Those who not only hear but believe Jesus have eternal life and will not come into judgment. All right? Look at verse 21 again. Let's look at this. Go back to 21. Kind of look at it if you need to turn pages or whatever. Keep your hand there and also in verse 24. There's a couple of interesting points here. Are you saved by your will or by his will? Now look back at verse 21. Verse 21 says, The Son gives life to whom he will. The Son gives life to whom he will. All right, the Son gives life to whom he will. Very simple. But now if you look at verse 24, in this passage, the one who has eternal life hears and believes. Um, So there is a hearing and there is a believing. So in this passage, the one who hears and believes has eternal life. But now this goes back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, you don't have to go back and read the whole thing. But the mystery of the Holy Spirit. How can a man be born again? What, does, what happens? How can we do this thing? And Jesus says, hey, it's not for you to control. You cannot control the Holy Spirit in regeneration. The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is sovereign. All right? The Holy Spirit is God. And we don't, we don't control God. We can't make God do what we want him to do. God does what God does. And the Holy Spirit bringing salvation, bringing regeneration, we cannot make the Holy Spirit do it. But according to John chapter 3, when Jesus explains this to Nicodemus, we see the effects of it. All right? What are the effects? As the wind blows, right? He says, we can't control the wind, but we can see the wind moving by the things that are moving. How do you know if it's windy outside? You can look out your window and tell these things. Why? Because trees are moving, okay? Because there's effect there. But we can't, I can't speak to that wind to make it stop or speak to that wind to make it go. It's out of my control. So is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does what it does. But yet, there is an effect. What are the effects of a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit upon a person's life? It is repentance. It is belief. It is hearing the gospel and believing in that gospel for your salvation. If you have rested in Jesus Christ for your salvation, it is because the Holy Spirit has brought you to salvation. He has regenerated you, all right? You come to Christ, you might say this, you come to Christ willingly because the Holy Spirit has made you willing on your day of salvation. Uh, So the question of whose will is it? It is God's will. It is the will of Christ, it is the will of the Holy Spirit, and it becomes your will as well. You see the beauty of Christ. You see the beauty of the cross. You see your sin and the darkness of it. And you come willingly to him as you have been made willing by Jesus Christ. Look at John 6.37. A couple of passages. We'll just kind of look at that for a moment. John 6.37. I know we'll get there eventually, but we'll just kind of, you'll know these passages really well by the time we get there. John 6.37 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's just a very clear passage. According to this passage, how many people have the ability in and of themselves to come to Jesus on their own? And it is zero. That is correct. Some of you are doing the sign language out there. All right. Uh, There's no one. So how many is that? That's, That's none. That's no one. Literally, no one can come to me. We do not have the power. We do not have the ability of some theological terms. Again, this will be total inability or total depravity, some might say. Where there, again, we're spiritually dead. All this is, is 
throughout the Bible. It's not just here. We are spiritually dead. We can do nothing unless we've been made alive by God. And that's what he says. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, how many people that he draws will actually come to him? Look at, look at the next portion here. And I will raise him up on the last day. So, according to this passage, what percentage of the people that the Father draws comes to him? It's 100%, right? So it's every person the Father draws to himself will come to him. Uh, look at, look at, uh, look at uh, this whole passage, not only will come, but look at this, I will raise him up on the last day. This is, again, great assurance that all those he calls come to him and, and they come to Christ, but also he'll raise them up on the last day. Is that eternal life is eternal. And so we rest in not only our salvation now, but the assurance of our salvation as well, that he will raise us up. How many, according to this verse, that he draws to himself end up making it to heaven? It's all. I mean, this is a powerful verse. Look at John 6, 44. Since we're on this topic, very similarly stated, John 6, 44. All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, sadly, these topics and passages are often controversial to many people, but I don't think Jesus spoke these to, be, uh, to mean for them to be controversial for believers. I think these were spoken for probably for them to be controversial for unbelievers, for those who are depending upon themselves and what they could do to get themselves to heaven. But for those who believe, we know we don't deserve heaven. We know it's only by the grace and mercy of God that he made us alive. He spoke life into death and brought us to himself. And what do we do? We thank God and we give him all the glory for our salvation. So, and there's great comfort in these, right? For us as believers, the very author of life, the one that can create life, the one that can restore life, is the very one who has spoken into your soul, get up, take your mat, and walk. You came to life. You are now walking in obedience to Christ and desiring to do such. Why? Not because you deserved it, not because you assisted in any way, but because God spoke. God drew. So this is what Jesus is saying. It's like, I am not only the author of life, I am the judge of all. And I am the one who gives life, and I am the one who can restore life. And by believing in me, honoring me, you get to the Father. Uh, let's go to verse 24, back to verse 24. And we already covered just a little bit, and that will be our last verse of today. Verse 24, when will a Christian possess eternal life, according to verse 24? He says, truly, truly, and again, this is repeated twice. We're supposed to focus in. He's saying something that draws us in, draws the crowd in. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has. If you're a circler, a writer, a highlighter, I would encourage you to circle that word, all right? Has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has. This is another good word to circle, highlight, whatever you want to do. Put arrows on it passed from death to life. So when will a Christian possess eternal life? Is it only after life? No. The moment a person is made alive by Jesus Christ, 
he or she has eternal life. They have passed from death to life. Can you go throughout your life fluctuating between eternal life and eternal death? Child of Satan, child of God. That is the opposite of what the Bible lays forth here. You have been born again supernaturally by an act of God. And there is nothing in your power that you can do to remove yourself from being born again. And neither would you ever want to. Because you have been made willing on the day of your salvation to come to God and to stay with God. Will you ebb and flow with your obedience some as you go from here to heaven? Yes. All right. This is a process of sanctification. But you will reach glorification one day. All those he calls are also going to be glorified. All those he called, he will raise up. You have eternal life. You have passed over from death to life. Now, so we have these things. Why is this important? Because this is a huge, huge place where so many Christians spend their wills all their life just going back and forth, back and forth. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved today? Oh, I I don't know if I'm saved now. Rest, this is the true Sabbath, in Jesus Christ for your salvation and his provision for covering of your sins and restoring you to life. Do you love God? Do you love the true God? Do you love Jesus? Do you honor Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the gospel for your salvation? Then you didn't come about that by your own doing. This is a supernatural act of God. Do you hate your sin? Do you repent of your sin? Unbelievers don't do that, all right? This is the effect, the wind blowing of the Holy Spirit that is in your life. So powerful passage there. Now, in summary, uh, who people believe Jesus to be is extremely important as Jesus is laying these things out. In fact, their eternity depends upon it. If like the Pharisees, you reduce Jesus to just a man who could perform signs, then you do not have eternal life and you will face him in judgment with all your sins and reap the due punishment for all of eternity. If Christ is your savior, then rest fully in his salvation. You have eternal life. You have passed from death to life. Jesus' perfect obedience made him the perfect sacrifice to pay for all your sins and to save you from the judgment and wrath of God to come. Take comfort in knowing that the very one who died is also the judge of all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die in our place. We honor the Son, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Gospel, and we thank you for giving us the good news of the Gospel, that even though we could not save ourselves, even though we could not bring ourselves back to life, that you do so. We owe our salvation 100% to you. God, if there's anyone here today who has not believed, has not heard and believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation, We pray, as your word says, that you would draw them to you for salvation today, Lord. May they see their sin, may they see what that sin deserves, and may they see the beauty of the Savior that you have provided so that we can rest in knowing that we have eternal life, that we have crossed over from death to life. We thank you for the salvation that is in Jesus Christ.